to the Dear Katie podcast. My name is Katie Kessner. And I'm Claire Kaplan. And before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that occasionally we have conversations in this podcast that can be difficult to hear. So we want to make sure and encourage all of you to care for your safety and well-being while you're listening. So reach out for emotional support from family or friends or a counselor if you have one or a hotline. And additional resources can be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Claire. And we are so delighted to have with us Patty Giggins. Um, Patty has been an activist um, and has truly changed the landscape, the conversation, the way we um, think about activism since her, your, your, (laughs) Patty, your start. And I, you know, for our listeners, I think maybe they they could have, um, we'll need to tell them decades. Like when you were um, a teenager, were you rebellious? We, we just, Claire and I just interviewed a very rebellious 14-year-old um, who, you know, was very angry through high school and her teens, but that propelled her to becoming an activist. So do you remember when you got mad? <laughs> mad enough to do something really different. <laughs> You know, I, I'll start by saying what what really influenced me early on. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, really influenced, you know, and I was in high school and then, and we were considered the Berkeley of the East. So the college I went to, the college I went to was, very, was pretty radical in a lot of ways. I remember going to, um, they had HUAC. Some of you may not remember. Claire would remember. House on in Activities. We protested the House of Un-American Activities Committee, you know, which is an extremely reactionary right-wing uh, group. And um, this was the time of the rights movements, the rights movements, um, civil rights, LGBTQ rights, feminine, you know, women's rights and feminism taking hold. But I remember on campus, when you, when you it's so funny, talk about a trigger. You just triggered me, <laughs> Katie. About in a good way. When I got mad, when I when I got mad as a, uh, a sophomore on campus, SDS was um, recruiting to have some uh, activities. You know, we're going to take some action. Students, right? right students for a democratic society. Um, and don't forget, you know, we were leading up to the Vietnam War. There was so much going on in the, when I was being formed, right? Um, and uh, so uh, me and two of my uh, girlfriends, we went to the meeting. And at the end of the meeting, everybody's getting all charged up about all these things that were going to go on and we were going to take action and to get petitions. And and then they were signing up for committees and stuff. And so we went up and said, hey, you know, we want to help. We want to be involved. And they said, well, would you take care of all the Xeroxing? Now, I mean, we don't even say Xeroxing now, right? We and it was like, it was like, talk about getting mad. That was the worst thing you could have sent to three budding feminists, right? And we said, no, and we're out of here. We left. We left, you know. Um, and so, yeah, when I <laughs> think of that, that, you know, that made me mad. It's interesting hearing from women who are involved in activist movements or the other kind of stories you tell, um, the idea that, you know, listening to women who are really involved, for example, in, with, in the Black Panthers and who were treated the same way. I mean, it's, you know, you can do, you can make the coffee, you can, you know, make the Xeroxes. Um, 
And yet women are so pivotal to these movements. And it, it's, I think, um, young folks, young folks, you know, younger people don't even, it's like, you don't even, you can't even wrap your head around it because even though it happens occasionally, it doesn't happen to that degree. Right. So it, it's accepted unless you're black and you're standing in front of a hotel. I think that's still, you get handed the keys to someone's car, right. To park the car when you're a guest at the hotel. Um, but, um, uh, Still, that that idea that somehow, um, especially for women, um, we're there to help something to happen. We're not there to actually be key. So you you got pissed off, and it didn't. It didn't. That experience did not dissuade us from becoming activists. You know, we you know we marched against the war in Vietnam. I, you know, my two friends. We kept in touch for quite a while after that. That each of us became activists. You know, that didn't dissuade us at all. May I just ask um, one thing, Patty? That's a curious, we have not talked about that either. I like, we've always been talking, I think, Claire, a lot to our guests who are kind of solo operators. Their friends were not like Patty's, just your description, Patty. Like, we've been talking to these these one-off, you know, survivor activist types who were kind of solo operators. And I like thinking about perhaps there's something unique about your friends that help propel you and support you in a way that, you know, I, I'm curious. I think sometimes we're, we're worried. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll also tell you one more thing, Patty, before I leave this. When I was being harassed at William & Mary as, you know, in 1918, the women were the ones, most of them, who spoke out the most loudly and vehemently against me. It was in the women's bathrooms where I would see Katie's A Slut Bichora written on the walls. So I think camaraderie and support women to women is something we should delve into and what that meant to you, if you don't mind talking a little bit about that. Truthfully, the history shows that through feminism, we really worked on building solidarity with one another. That was part of that was part of what had to be broken down. I mean, I remember living in Greenwich Village, and I was at that point I was married, uh, graduated from college, um, was married, living in Greenwich Village, and started a consciousness raising group in my living room. This is early on. This is when, you know, when we had consciousness raising groups. And exactly part of the feminist way. And, 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 and women really, again, that was another profound experience for me. Women talking to each other sometimes for the first time about what their real lives were like, what their relationships were like. And sometimes it was about how abusive they were, you know, and that was going on, not just in my living room. That was going on in a lot of living rooms, in a lot of spaces. And I remember writing um, in a notebook at the time saying, if women really started to be real with one another and started to talk to one another from honest places, the whole family dynamic would change and the world would change. I still have that note in this little notebook that I wrote in 1969, 68, I think it was, 67 maybe, you know. Um, and I feel like that's exactly what's happened, <laughs> you know. I do believe that 
women have in, in our, in, you know, from my generation forward, not to say that it wasn't, there weren't great women and great movements before, but it's been a consistent, I think a consistency of trying to move forward. Um, and women stepping into their own empowerment and finding the courage to speak up and uh, joining with one another and trying to influence. But it is an interesting point that feeling that kind of solidarity is really helpful in being able to continue one's work. And when you feel like you're working alone, that's very hard. And uh, uh, so, so there you were... Or sometimes, Claire, what happens is you're kind of, uh, what's the word? Um, what's the word that I want? You're kind of exiled. Something happens and maybe something like, you know, as Katie's referring to, then all of a sudden things shift and then you're being exiled and you're saying, why is this happening? You know, where, where are, where are you all? You know, and then it takes another kind of courage to stay the course, to be true to yourself and your values. Because that happens, that happens too. Betrayal happens. And now it's happening on social media for people you don't even know. And I, I like, let's talk a little bit more about that idea of betrayal. I think there's a different sensitivity to betrayal when you, you have this long standing belief that if nothing else, I have blank. If nothing else, I have God. If nothing else, I have my faith. If nothing else, I have my father, my mother. If I've, nothing else, I have my sister. If nothing else, I have women. <laughs> if nothing else, I have blank, right? And I think the eroding of ultimately we have nothing. <laughs> and it's very hard, especially to find those we can truly depend upon and trust and be vulnerable with so that we can grow. Um, what do you think about that, Patty? Because clearly you must have, I don't know what that what that means to you when I say it that way, but how did you carve out if nothing else, but I still have me? Was it, did you ultimately say I have myself? Yeah. And I worked on that. And one of the ways I worked on that was when I went into the martial arts. I love that. Can you talk about that? I did. I did, you know, I really, I took up the martial arts, took up uh, Taekwondo and then karate because I wanted to feel stronger um, not just physically, and I'm a short person, I'm a little under five feet. Um, but, and I was always the, you know, in a crowd, in fact, going to demonstrations, I'd have to go hide in a doorway sometimes because like so much is going on. I thought I'd get trampled, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, but more, more so, um, in like, uh, inside myself to feel, um, you know, what is that? Who is that inside? You know, and my fears. What am I scared of? Kind of thing. And I was. And I also, well, may I just ask one thing, Patty? Because it's, I think it's interesting to say that this was a path you chose. And I feel like that predated all of these marketing, I'll, I'll not say marketing schemes, kind of marketing pushes for women. Like, go learn self defense, go learn how to be a kick butt person. And you were choosing this well before anyone was marketing it to you or pushing it on as a way to stay safe as a woman. Is that true or false? Am I? That's totally true. And I was one of the few women to go into the martial arts. 
and they were most, and they were male dominated dojos. That's what, what, that's all there was. So it was, you know, women, a handful of us were stepping into that arena. Many women left because they weren't respected. They were hit on all the time. They weren't really taught. You know what I mean? They were there for whatever other reasons that the, uh, instructor might have, um, or the classmates might have. But I was very determined to, um, stick it out. You know, uh, now where that came from, I know that because I was in an all male dojo and there were times in the beginning, when you, what you do is you spar with a partner. So I was the only woman, and this is in Paris, and you, so you, you have to pair up to spar. And I was standing there by myself, and sometimes there'd be three guys trying to work together, so nobody would work with me. Right. Um, and so what happened was, and this was fortuitous, I, the instructor, a Japanese sensei, um, I'll always be grateful for him. Um, he said, uh, hey, no, come on. You know, you got to work together. You know, he did that kind of thing. So, and then some of the guys, you know, warmed up to it. And so I was able to have some sparring partners. And then at one point, a women would come and they would leave. They wouldn't stay. And so the, uh, my sensei said, how come all the women who come, they leave and you stay? I said, because I have a hard head. <laughs> I told him, you know, and I said, there's something in here about this training and this practice, that's really important to me, you know, and I'm going to pursue it, right? And he said, well, you know, do you think it would benefit other women? I said, I think so. He said, why don't you teach a class on Saturdays just for women? This is where I got the idea of karate women. I was in fact, why don't you teach it? This is a man, my sensei. You know, actually, the three martial arts teachers that I had were all men. I've never been taught by a woman. And each of them treated me really well. So I don't know if it was luck or a, a chemistry we had. It was so respectful. And they wanted to teach me, you know. So I then started doing this class on Saturday morning. So I had my own class. And after class, we'd all go to a cafe and we sit around, we talk about our lives. So I started to see, I started to hear some of their stories. So then when I was had them in class, I could see how they moved. And I thought, I wonder if, because now I knew about a little bit about their lives. I, I wonder if this person's stuck and can't make that move because of some prior experiences, you know. So I started to think about how useful doing this kind of, which is a, it is a kind of aggressive movement that you make in karate, you know, um, and that maybe that this kind of movement is going to help just the way it was helping me to build up my confidence and my, um, you know, self-knowledge. Right. And that's how I started. And then when I came back to the United States, I came back to the United States with an idea that I wanted to teach martial arts to women and started the first karate women's school in Southern California here in Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, I want to go then to, you know, your work uh, around sexual violence, Patty. Um, can you talk to us about what that, how that looked for you and what are some of the most significant things that you've done in, in your opinion? I love, you know, we can talk about Jeans Day. We can talk about why you changed the name of an organization, like any of those. 
Well, let me tell you this other little story because I think you'll be interested in it. Um, and then I'll talk about that. Uh, the uh, one thing that, again, when I came to the agency, they actually came to my dojo and tapped me on the shoulder and said, would you come and, and do some training for our self-defense instructors? Because feminists already started to pick up on we need to defend ourselves, right? women's self-defense. And that's when I got to meet Betty Brooks, who we call the grandmother, the great-grandmother. She's passed on now of self-defense in, uh, in California. Um, there were, there were women who were figuring out how to teach self-defense, but they didn't come from martial arts. They came from the feminist movement. They came from rape crisis centers, et cetera. Um, and so I was asked to come and to help retrain them so they could up their skill set. That's how I got involved. And, um, again, sitting in circle at the office and, uh, Claire remembers Judy Ravitz and, um, and Joan and Joan Sutherland and these brilliant people, right? That I got to meet because they were there. And, um, I remember, and we were at already doing sexual assault and domestic violence. I believe we were probably the first dual agency in the country. You know? and, and that might not be 100% accurate, but my sense is after all these years that Early on, we started doing sexual assault, and right away, battered women were calling the sexual assault hotline, right? You remember, Claire. You remember, right? And so, yes, a, a, dual, a dual agency in the, in the whole network that we have now of centers who deal with victims, victim survivors of sexual and domestic violence. A dual agency means you do both, and maybe even child sexual abuse as part of it. You know, stalking is part, but you're considered a dual agency as opposed to a, a, an, an agency that focuses pretty much 100% on domestic violence, could be a shelter, right? And then an agency that has a rape crisis center, sexual assault agency that focuses predominantly on sexual assault. There is, a, there are, um, in California, I think there are about 30 or 35% of all the, um, centers dealing with these issues are dual agencies. So that's that category. So early on, our agency uh, was doing both. And so what happened to me, I'll tell you this personal um, story, is through this process then of learning about domestic violence, learning all these things, it didn't, it's not as if I had this prior, a lot of didactical prior knowledge, um, about the issues. I learned it as I started to go through the training and then became the trainer at, at Macaw at BOD. Um, is that I was, I was reminded that I grew up in a household with domestic violence, that my stepfather beat up my mother. And I witnessed that. And it really didn't get talked about. And then it didn't even get talked about in the movement until we started to recognize that witnessing domestic violence is a trauma and it's an issue all unto itself. So you didn't have to be the direct recipient. But I didn't know that. The movement didn't know that until we started to uncover it. And that provided me with like an amazing opening. And I talk about a gigantic revelatory aha moment, you know, but I had kind of had that was packed away because nobody ever talked to me about it. 
Right. And so then we started to talk about it as a movement and recognize how witnessing, you know, is an important part of the trauma experience. Um, So that's one of the things that I'd say is a pivot and an adaptation that you're talking about. Because then we started to really educate about it, research about it, really listen to those survivor stories, witnesses. Right. And I guess, you know, Patty, I I know you're not sending down your torch yet. So when I'm listening to you and thinking, always thinking, thinking, thinking strategically, as you seem to always do yourself, and I know Claire has, what I was thinking about recently then is it may, what are your thoughts on bringing the two branches together? Because since most states divide out domestic violence and sexual assault, is there, you know, is there still enough of a difference between how we're supporting survivors? Because I honestly think so many survivors of domestic violence are also survivors of sexual assault. (laughs) And then survivors of sexual assault go on to become survivors of dating and personal, right? What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you're not giving this a lot of thought because you have the issues and how they um, conflate, right, and are, and are intersectional, right? Absolutely how it lands on people uh, and survivors and, the whole, and life experience. But the system is such that to meld them together would only create more and worse bureaucracy. So for me... What I would like to see is the coalitions to work much closer together. Like, yeah, let the funding sources do what they do. Um, the federal government has done some of that by, with their VOCA funding and their VAWA funding of, you know, say we're going to fund sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, blah, blah, blah. You know, so they have some of that wider open orientation. But it would concern me to do anything that would create more hoops to jump through more reports, more, you know, more bureaucracy. But I, I hear what you're saying. And I've always been one to, again, I'm a movement person. I'm a coalition person. And when we can have our coalitions be um, more copacetic and collaborate and support each other, um, that's what I think it is. I think it's on the ground where we have to do it. Not so much in the, in the, um, but, you know, but continue to raise the consciousness of, of the um, of the funders, of course. For the sake of time and for the sake of everything else, um, so you've you know we've referenced the LA Commission on Assaults Against Women, which became Peace Over Violence, and there was a whole um, reasoning behind that, and it would, I think people would be interested to hear why the change and what was the philosophy behind it. Um, well, there was. Uh, there was a long time, uh, time interest in changing the name because we started out, the name sounds like an official city organization, right? But we're not. And what the name came from, that there was a task force by the city, one of the city council members, I think it was Peggy Stevenson. Um, so they created this task force and then they had to make a decision. Should they go into the city or should they become a nonprofit? And the founders decided they didn't want to be scooped up by the city. They wanted more independence. It became a nonprofit. Right? Um, and so we had this name, though the name stayed. 
And um, I know there were sometimes board members would say, but nay, it's hard, especially corporate board members, companies, you know, business people. You know, it's hard to push this name. I want to get more funding and get more people involved. But this name, it's, you know, it doesn't really resonate with people. And we kind of do that. But it took a while. We couldn't, we couldn't wrap our heads around that. Finally, we did. Finally, we said, you know what? It's time. You know, we're talking, I think, 12 years ago now. So we went through an entire process of a rebranding and trying to find the best name. And we wanted a name that was inspirational, that was aspirational, um, and that was not more than three words. I mean, we really got it down because we were working with a branding designer, right? And so you got to think about these things. You don't want to have a long name like you have. Um, and so we uh, went through a whole process. It was like a year and a half process looking at different names. And these, um, it was Rebecca Mendez, uh, from UCLA. Um, and, uh, what they did was they, they came to meetings, little meetings, big, they just followed us around to figure out who we were. What, what is it? Who are we and who do we want to be? And so we were asked all these questions. We went through a remarkable process. So finally we came up and the board approved the name Peace Over Violence. And um, it was a name that I actually, uh, when I, I had um, I had uh, Rebecca and her husband and collaborator, Adam, over from my house for dinner because we had two weeks before they were supposed to present 10 names to the board. And I hadn't heard from them. I said, you come over here. We got to have, let's have dinner. I want to hear the names. So they come over, and uh, through the course of the evening, I said, you don't have any names yet, do you? I said, we've got to have these names. They said, well, we're not sure. And, and I said, you know, that name that came up, Victory Over Violence, you got to put that on the list because the boy did like that name, but, you know, we wanted to go through a whole process. So they said, we don't like that name. I said, yeah, there's something about that. There's no victory over violence, really. No one wins, right? So we, I was sitting in my kitchen, we were drinking wine, and I remember I asked the question, what is it about that we do like about victory over violence? And we all said, hmm, it's the over violence. And then we started throwing out peace over violence, survivors over violence, community over violence, you know, all these over violence. And we realized that we were talking about creating an engine where everybody could be over and that's how we, and that's what the board approved. That's how we became peace over violence. And there was a little pushback because we didn't have women in our name anymore. So we did get a little pushback about that, but we felt pretty secure about it, that, that we had uh, good bones and that we were not going to lose. Of course, that was a huge focus, but we also wanted to include everyone, you know, um, and we were discovering that, that, you know, LGBTQ relationships, we were under, uh, you know, had, had DV and sex assault. We, we, we you know, we, we were realizing that men, you know, could also be battered. So we were, we were very secure that we were not going to lose that we're focusing on gender-based issues and on women's issues by having a name that was as broad and as hopefully inspirational as peaceful. And is that, give it a, that's the cool thing about that name. And I'm thinking of the, the teen programs that you developed. And there were teen programs when I was there, but it was, they didn't blossom the way they have since. And, um, and I remember you were doing anti-gang work and, and things like that. And I was just thinking, you know, people probably wonder, how did this, how does this connect? Well, 
That's what, what happened is one of the things that I've done as a leader and, and thank goodness I have folks here who do the same thing is we show up in different spaces. We don't always show up in the usual, you know, in the rape crisis space or the DD space, right? Or the funder space. We, because of making the connection of these issues are everywhere. They are everywhere. In fact, we have, our thesis is that if you really want to reduce gun violence, you want to reduce gang violence, you want to reduce substance abuse, right? Um, mental health issues, then you need to reduce the amount of domestic violence and sexual violence. Tackle that because in every one of our social, uh, issues that are problematic and huge, when you start drilling down, that's what you're going to find. Including mass shootings that you find that some of these mass shooters, they shot their mother, they shot their girlfriend, they shot their wife before they go out and shoot up a supermarket or a, you know, a, a park somewhere with strangers, you know. So that's our thesis. That's why, um, that's why I'm not hanging my hat up yet, you know, uh, because we have not been able to get that to have the impact that it needs to have when it comes to all the social norms. Yep. I, I will answer it in where I am. And if, you know, maybe part of our interview was we could maybe join forces on this. Um, I'm not saying that all men are bad, but I, I'm saying that the roots of, you know, you've used patriarchy as a term and power and privilege and understandings of equality and understandings of, you know, asking someone to Xerox stuff, all of it goes back to how do we infuse the next generation of power holders with an understanding of what they are, are and are not entitled to, which is much larger than the sexual landscape. It's larger than it, it it encompasses, you know, I am a survivor and I, as far as Clara informed me, you are not. But I think what unites us is not survivorship, but feeling like there is a system that enables some people to treat us like less than. And so going to the biggest root of the weed, you know, you don't just lop off the top of the weed. We have to go to the root in my opinion. And so my long-winded answer to your question is when I go to the root, it is starting to imbue what it means to be a powerful person on any space or place around the globe with you don't harm, marginalize, or disrespect someone else to attain your position. You do so not by pushing anyone else down or ex, um, exercising power and control over a person. You only do so by attainment of true merit through skills, contributions, excellence. And, and so I think a long time coming to me, Patty, has always meant I've seen there's the pushing of another person down to attain power or like feeling entitled to, 
be powerful over another human as part of that um, gift of powership. And I want to take that out of the equation. So I don't know if that made sense, but that's where I was. Yeah, and that's, and that's good. That's val- it's valuable. I think, but what I think the point that I wanted to bring up was, though, um, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And we want, we could just be mad and, and don't, not want to see that the, you know, this guy who just tried to do this to me is hurt. And in the moment, that's not what you're thinking about. But traumatized people create other traumatized people by their actions, right? And so if we're talking about prevention and we're talking about breaking cycles, um, we are leaving out a huge, huge percentage of people in the work that we do, the work that we do in the sexual assault, domestic violence, violence against women, you know, arena. Um, and that's my question for the future. Yeah. You know, my feeling is, and it's funny how when we first, when I first started doing this work and, and you know, we kept using that mantra, rape is um, uh, not sex, rape is violence, not sex. And then it sort of morphed into rape is violence using sex as a weapon. But, you know, <clears throat> a lot of it's about sex. And it's like, it is. And, and that, we've had some bad, we've had some bad memes and, and, uh, and messages inaccurate at the time, but we've, we've advanced. We know that, that there are violence in the sexual arena. Absolutely. And it may not be. Yeah. Go ahead. And when I'm thinking, you know, when I think about people who are, um, uh, people who do sex education and that the whole professional world of people who are sex educators and they are working against the tide also. And they are aware of these issues that if we really had real medically accurate, truthful, honest, Sex education, age appropriate, starting from, you know, obviously we can't control what parents do, but, you know, with preschool, that children would learn to respect their own bodies. They would learn to have body rights and they would learn to respect other kids' bodies. And they would also learn that if they were hurt, that they could tell someone. And that, but if you learn to be, learn about healthy sexuality, healthy relationships, all these sorts of things, if we could make it every year, and make it in, you know, infuse it into other lessons. This is the stuff, of course, that the Florida governor would just be terrified of. But the idea that, that we're talking about health and we're talking about respect and we're talking about, um, citizenship, we're talking about all the things that we're talking about that we could catch people who are being hurt as we try to do with child abuse prevention programs in schools, but catch people who are being hurt and then provide services so that they don't, you know, it doesn't get worse. But also, so we all grow up understanding what your right, what our rights are as a human being and what our sexual rights are. And uh, I think that if people, you know, if there was a better understanding of that, I had college students who still didn't know what the names of their body parts were. I mean, I, you know, they learned about, they learned about sex from pornography. Nobody's teaching them anything. And, and porn is hardly a place to learn about consensual sex. So, so, so if, if that's, the world we're in and they all access, you know, the internet. So how do we teach kids? That's not what, that's not true. What you're watching. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, now you, now you're breaking it all down into all the compartments. That's why I know we talk about, we talk about intersectionality when it comes, you know, to race and gender. 
But that is, you know, the interconnectedness of all of these things. But as activists, we can't work on all of it at the same time. That's why I'm so glad there are folks who are out there trying to mobilize around much better sex education and health education while we're doing what we're doing. You know what I mean? Uh, trying to prevent sexual, sexual violence and domestic violence and have, and, and, and people learning that it's possible to have a healthy relationship where one person doesn't, you know, have power and could try to have power and control over another person. But that's what's so complex about all of this is that it's, it's all interconnected. And, um, and, and what, you know, Katie's talking about trying to get people who are in, in some of these privileged schools and privileged spaces to rethink. There's so many places to work on improving the human condition. You know, and that's why I love it when people choose the different kinds of activism they choose because I can't go and do all that other stuff. I can only do what I can do, you know. Well, we can talk to each other and we can encourage each other and we can see, we can, we can, um, connect the dots. So, so the anti-violence activists working on, on racial justice issues and, and vice versa or, um, you know, it's, we have, we have to work together because we are dependent on one another for right. this to change. Finding finding healthier living situations for the homeless mm-hmm. is violence prevention. For example, raising the minimum wage to more of a living age, truthfully, that's violence prevention. There are, you know, there's so many things. I mean, the fact that we may lose choice looks like we that's will. Violence. Mm-hmm. That's violence. Right? And having choice is violence prevention, if you can have it, if there's places to go and you can exercise it, right? So it's, yeah, it's all, it's all interconnected and each one of us have to figure out, um, and that's why I encourage activism, you know, with young people. And, but, you know, young people have always been the activists anyway. You know, look at all of us. We all, you know, started young and we never stopped. <laughs> the one but, difference is that college students now are too busy working to support themselves in college, and they don't have the time to do the activism yeah. that they did when they were younger. That's a sad piece. No, um, Patty, uh, we have. I think you know. What would you like to land on with our listeners who are from all walks of life? For the moment we're in right now, we're in a very tough, tough moment in our country and in the world. There are, yeah, there's so many forces. Reactionary forces, the world is very complex. Um, I would say find your comadres and your copadres, find your people, find your people and perfect your values, really understand what they are, make sure you, you know, you have good values and don't give up. Just don't give up. Because the reactionary forces will come and they will go and then there'll be more. And it's going to be that kind of stop start, um, to getting to, as Martin Luther King said, the promised land. You know what I mean? To, it's going to, it's, it's not one generation that's going to fix it. You know, it has to be generational. We have to pass the, pass the torch, um, share the torch. I would also say, you know. Um, but we can't give up. 
even in the face of some of the horrible things that are that come at us that come at come at people who don't deserve it right um yeah this we can't give up as hard as, as hard as it is we just can't give up we have to keep pushing the envelope um yeah uh, it was amazing so again, this is Katie Kessner signing off on the Dear Katie podcast. We are so grateful, Patty, for your time, your journey, all the um, times we have talked about your impetus for change and what your vision is. So I hope our listeners will learn and be inspired by your your own personal journey. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for me as well, of course, and, and um, as having been a part of the journey with you for so many years. It's, it's a pleasure today. And we're grateful to all of our listeners too, who joined us today for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. So if you need support, but don't know where to find it, visit takebackthenight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. And you can also help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and making sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. So thank you to all of them. And again, thank you listeners for being present today. And thank you, Patty, for joining us. And always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thank you. Thank you. And tune in next week for another episode.